Support for this podcast and the following message come from Coriant. Coriant provides wealth management services centered around you. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Coriant has experienced teams who can craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex. Real wealth requires real solutions. Connect with a wealth advisor today at Coriant.com. That's Coriant.com. That, that's a, an excellent question. Oh, sorry, I hate when people say that. This excellent. Everyone always says everything's a great question. It's just stall. <laughs> it's a terrible question. That's David Otter. He's the Ford Professor of Economics at MIT. We're going to come back to Dr. Otter in a second, but first, I have to tell you what's happening. My name is Brendan Greeley. I'm the U.S. editor for FT Alphaville. I'm new here, and I've taken on the job of reanimating this podcast. I used to be a dedicated Alpha Chat listener, so for me, this is like getting to host The Tonight Show. I am excited. Our job at Alphaville is to chase down our obsessions. We will continue to do that here. We will still talk at length with very smart people. We will try some experiments. Our goal will be to take ideas and data from finance and economics and explain why they matter to the rest of us. That is why we're talking to David Otter. Donald Trump intuitively sensed that people in America were angry about trade. David Otter is one of a small group of economists who were able to explain why and where that anger actually took hold. We recorded him in his office in Cambridge. I was at a studio in Washington, D.C. We talked about what the profession of economics got wrong, how it has been fixing itself, and a little bit about why policy is still catching up. I started by asking him what we used to think we knew about trade and what we know now. Sure. So let me let me I'm going to restate it. What I saw as a conventional wisdom, which is that trade raises GDP. Uh, it may be somewhat redistributive, but over a large economy like the U.S. with 150 million uh, workers, you know, a few million jobs here or there, uh, you know, not going to move the needle on overall wage levels. And if people have to reallocate across sectors, uh, you know, well, we're a pretty low friction labor market. You know, people uh, quickly find reemployment, so it's not going to leave deep scars, even if we have to make some uh, make some adjustments. I think that was the conventional wisdom. Now. China's, you know, China's growth had started in the 80s. It became an important trading partner with the U.S. in the 1990s. And then after 2000, there was an inflection point where China's uh, exports to the U.S. just surged. The U.S. ran a very large merchandise trade deficit, uh, it was a couple of percentage points of GDP. And so what that meant is we were importing a whole lot of manufacturing goods uh, from China. And they were displacing U.S. production to a substantial extent uh, because if we were you know, importing those manufacturing goods and we were running a trade deficit, it meant that we weren't going to be exporting in the same quantities. Uh, and so that meant that people were going to have to reallocate from manufacturing into other types of work. And, and that the, the manufactured goods that China particularly exported in the United States in that period were labor-intensive production goods. So uh, textiles, leather goods, commodity furniture assembled toys, assembled electronics. So these were uh, the kind of lowest uh, wage and lowest skilled parts of U.S. manufacturing, many of them located in the South Atlantic and in the South. And so absolutely, as you would expect, a lot of those import competing manufacturers firms shut down. And the thing to understand about manufacturing, of course, this is intuitive, is unlike you know grocery stores and dry cleaners and restaurants, manufacturing isn't done 
everywhere. <laughs> it's done uh, in the places where it occurs. It's often a big part of uh, employment and industrial activity. And moreover, it's not just manufacturing generically. Areas specialize in making certain things. So, you know, uh, North and South Carolina specialized in, you know, textiles and furniture. A lot of the commodity furniture in the United States was made in Tennessee. And so when you see, you know, concentrated losses in one industry, those are also concentrated losses in one place. And so these trade-induced declines in manufacturing employment were highly, highly geographically concentrated, with some places, you know, losing a substantial share of employment. In fact, one out of every three U.S. manufacturing jobs uh, went away between 1999 and 2011. Now, two-thirds of that was prior to the Great Recession, then another third during the Great Recession. So the first, probably the two-thirds of it was much more associated with the China shock, and then the next third associated with just the overall contraction employment due to the, uh, the Great Recession. So that had extremely concentrated geographic impacts. And so the pain was you know, pretty immediate, pretty visible. Uh, people knew why these factories were shutting down. And some of them were quite large, you know, furniture factories that had, you know, 1,000 or even 10,000 employees that were making furniture for Target and Walmart and so on. Uh, those were the ones that uh, found their business models no longer viable in the face of much uh, less expensive uh, labor-intensive production in China. Now, that leaves the question, well, how did places and people uh, adjust to that? So in a kind of a frictionless world that exists uh, in economics textbooks, <laughs> uh, people would seek new work. Uh, They would move out of manufacturing and into uh, services of different types. And because uh, if the the U.S. is just one big frictionless labor market, even, you know, a few million people or a couple million people moving out of one sector into another wouldn't exert much downward wage pressure on the entire U.S. economy, right? You'd have a little bit movement of movement of uh, an outward supply shift in in non-manufacturing that might reduce wages a little bit for non-college workers, but it shouldn't be a big deal. But what happened instead is that these effects were extremely localized. You saw movements out of manufacturing and into non-employment, so unemployment and out of the labor force. Local non-manufacturing contracted along with manufacturing a little bit. And that's not altogether surprising because, you know, people, uh, you know, when they're working, they go out to movies, they go to restaurants, they buy stuff. They were doing less of that. In addition, you know, manufacturing firms, you know, use logistics and services and cleaning and trucking they needed less of. And so you didn't see local reabsorption. In fact, if anything, there was a kind of a negative multiplier. So areas that lost manufacturing also lost non-manufacturing, at least you know numerically in terms of employment. And then we saw a bunch of other maladies associated with this. So people going on to disability benefits, taking early retirement, uh, some increase in kind of other social maladies, including drug and alcohol abuse and just idleness. So it would left... Uh, very geographically concentrated, very visible uh, scars that persisted for at least a decade. Now, I don't want to say places are never going to rebound, and there's some evidence that they are and that you know firms are adjusting, but the medium-run costs were, were much more concentrated and deep than would have been predicted if you thought – uh, the world looked like a big frictionless labor market where, you know, anything that happened locally just rippled out across the entire country and so was diffused. And so, you know, we we chuckle about this idea of a frictionless labor market because, of course, labor markets aren't without friction. But they come from economic models that policymakers learned 
you know, when they took micro and macro, 101 and 102. So the, the, the challenge is these models are incredibly powerful ideas. And most of us don't move, even policymakers don't move beyond 101 and 102. Those are the classes that they take, and then they go into some other discipline. And so, you know, it's almost as if for a decade and a half, there was this conversation going on where many economists and almost all policymakers were saying, look, we're looking at the numbers, you guys are fine, and we know the theory, and you guys are going to be fine. And then you have actual people with their lived experiences in these specific geographic areas saying, no, we are definitely not fine. And so economics and policy lacked the the right kind of microscope to see that, in fact, they were right. When they said we are not fine and we're not going to be fine, they were right. Yeah, that that's exactly right. I think that policy was pretty blind to this problem, partly because economists had taught policymakers that they didn't need to worry about this much. The you know the view was just suck it up, you'll be okay, <laughs> uh, and uh, this is not you know everyone wins, uh, and uh, it's going to be fine. And the, as a result of that, there wasn't much put in place to help workers. Now there was trade adjustment assistance. It's a modest program. And it's hard to access. It's not that generous. Uh, but it existed and it was used. Um, but it was – expenditures on that were very small <laughs> relative to the rise in other public transfers, for example, disability, Medicare, Medicaid, uh, food stamps, uh, temporary assistance for needing needy families and so on. So when I say food stamps, of course, I mean SNAP, the Supplemental Nutrition Assistance Program. And, and let me say, you know, why, why did, you know – economists, you know, operate with these textbook, you know, frictionless models when the world doesn't operate that way. Well, it's interesting. Uh, labor economists don't use those models. Labor economists don't think that the world is frictionless. In fact, labor economists have known for decades since the work of Jacobson, Lalonde, and Sullivan that job displacement is extremely costly for individuals. They, you know, people lose, you know, 20 to 30 percent of income for, you know, 10 years at a time. There's increased mortality uh, and so on. So we, uh, labor economists, I'm a labor economist, that <laughs> uh, we've been sensitive to that issue for a long time. But in trade models, trade models were about uh, general equilibrium consequences of trade and were not focused on labor market consequences. And the labor market was just a little, you know, toy model of workers reallocating across sectors with no frictions. And so trade economists were not sensitive to this issue. And of course, the advice on trade was coming from trade economists. Now, again, it's not that trade economists were evil or, you know, ill-intentioned or uninterested. They just sort of thought this was a second-order issue. They didn't have evidence to suggest uh, otherwise. And also, I do think the one the one thing one can fault the economics profession for on this is that it has engaged, you know, more than almost any public policy, economists have been you know, unanimously pro-trade to the point where intellectual supports, you know, moves into advocacy and uh, there's, you know, the, the appropriate caveats about, well, what could go wrong <laughs> have not been uh, – were not issued. And so I think economists, you know, so deeply believed in the efficiency benefits of trade that they didn't really want to talk about – uh, well, you know, the the possible downsides in terms of distributional consequences because they thought, well, you know, the model says it's there, but we've never really seen it. So, you know, it's like it's like reading all the side effect, possible side effects on a prescription bottle. <laughs> you know, it's yeah. very long and, you know, mo most of them seem quite unlikely. Uh, Danny Roderick, the the economist at uh, the Harvard uh, Kennedy School, has this uh, story that he's told many times before. I, I heard it for the first time recently where, he, he you know, he's writing about trade in the 1990s, and he's warning that globalization uh, may have gone too far, and he gives his book to be blurbed to a prominent economist who he will not name at Harvard, and the economist says, well, 
you're just going to encourage the barbarians with this. You know, it's counterintuitive to explain that trade makes things better for everybody. And it turns out that it's counterintuitive because it's not right. <laughs> well, it, it, it makes it makes countries better off. So the principle can vary. You know, Paul Samuelson, the, you know, arguably the greatest economist of the 20th century, said there are, you know, very few things in economics that are both non-intuitive and also true. <laughs> I, he, his view was everything that was in economics that was true was also sort of, of course. Uh, but the, the principle of comparative advantage, the notion that, you know, two countries, uh, one rich and one poor, can both get wealthier by trading with one another is a non-intuitive notion. And it's something, you know, when I teach that to uh, students, I spend a lot of time on the blackboard demonstrating why that makes sense, uh, you know, showing it numerically, showing it theoretically, giving analogies, and so on. So, that's a hard idea, and economists have spent a long time trying to convince people of that. And that was not the received wisdom. In the, you know, in the you know, in the days before neoclassical economics had such a large sway on policy, people took a mercantilist view, which is if I export, that's good; if I import, that's bad. <laughs> uh, so it was a hard-won intellectual battle to get policymakers to see that countries should want to trade and engage in free trade, not just push their goods on one country and not buy anything in exchange. <laughs> And so that I think the notion of you know don't you know don't don't feed the barbarian was well we, we don't want to backslide on that so that's partly where that uh, that view came from and you know it's interesting because Paul Krugman uh, the Nobel Prize winning uh, trade economist and also a New York Times columnist his work actually also formed another intellectual case for why you would want to engage in strategic trade policy, which is that you might have infant industries that you could grow and then you could become Boeing, you could become Microsoft, you could become Apple, but you have to get big before you do that. And so there are reasons that you would actually uh, want to fool around with trade rather than just have free trade. But Krugman, after he wrote that work, he basically said, you know, in more popular uh, writing said, well, it's true in theory, but you wouldn't want to use that as a basis for policy because it could just lead to all kinds of mistrust. <laughs> and so, you know, I mean, better it's mistrust. It's it's economists not trusting politicians. Well, you know, <laughs> there may be good reason for that. <laughs> uh, but yeah, I th I think that's right. I think that uh, so you know what we what economists would say about trade is you know in uh, academic settings say yeah it you know it raises GDP but it could be have redistribution of con restrictive consequences. It's hard to redress those because we don't have many policies that just compensate losers fully while you know rewarding winners. And moreover, the strategic trade policy, you can see a textbook case for it, um, but, you know, it could just result in, you know, countries, you know, backing their national champions and investing in bad ideas, uh, trying to, you know, get market share. And so best to kind of keep it simple. <laughs> you know, trade is good. Uh, free trade among consenting uh, nations makes them all better off. But this feels insane. This is this is how we treat our children, right? When well, our children ask complicated moral yeah. questions, we say, okay, well, that's one for adults. We'll talk about it when you get a little older. Well, I think this was all made, I, I think you would say, well, we'd have some qualms about it. But look, the evidence is that this is working fine. Sure, we're, we're you know, this is a little bit of a white lie, but we're growing you know, we're we're a wealthy country where we have lots of employment. We haven't uh, seen big scars from this type of policy. People will adjust if they need to adjust. It won't be that hard. And it's good in other ways, uh, geopolitically, strategically. So I don't think there was a, a kind of a Soylent Green situation <laughs> where there's this terrible, you know, dark secret that made it all possible. I think the view was it was benign. 
Uh, and and it was much, much most of it was benign. Uh, let me be clear. You know, in the sort of post Bretton Woods era in the Second World War, it was mostly free trade among wealthy economies that were trading on the basis of comparative advantage. Uh, and, and not not that our trade with China isn't on the basis of comparative advantage, but it's it's much more about cost than simply you know technological know how. And so it really uh, it really did result in dramatic growth worldwide, and it was beneficial to the U.S., beneficial to uh, most of the developed and developing world, and didn't seem to have wrenching economic consequences. So I, I think there was reason to think it was working great, that China China was oh, extraordinary in many, many ways. I mean, one was how fast China advanced, right? China went from a state of economic and political chaos in the Mao Zedong era to, uh, you know, to a state of just sustained year-on-year productivity growth of 7 to 15 percent, you know, this monumental reallocation of labor, you know, over uh, 400 million people ultimately migrating from unproductive agriculture into urban areas where the special economic zones where they were doing production. And so China became much more competitive, much faster than anyone would have predicted. I mean, it it's a, it's a fabulous event, by the way, for world welfare. It's created the, you know, the uh, move people out of extreme poverty into the world middle class at a rate we've never seen before. So it's great. But the, hold on. But this ends up being a tricky argument to make because I, I sort of I, this argument frustrates me a little bit because, you know, 15 years ago, we had this conversation. You know, we need more trade. Why? It's going to be good for you. 15 years pass. It wasn't good for us. Yeah, but it was really good for a bunch of people in China. So shouldn't you be happy? About that? <laughs> well, OK, so I didn't, I'm not saying it wasn't good for the United States in net. It's just had a lot of uh, adverse distributional consequences. So it's not that it made the U.S. poorer, uh, but it created a lot of concentrated pain as well as diffuse gains. The other thing that's so distinctive about China, in addition to its incredibly rapid development, is uh, its size. So if you know Vietnam or Cambodia had done the same thing, prices would have risen very rapidly because they just didn't have that much capacity. And so they couldn't be that disruptive uh, because, you know, Cambodia or Vietnam could become, you know, the world's, you know, leading manufacturer of tennis shoes or, uh, or you know, commodity furniture. But pretty soon labor costs would rise and it wouldn't be that big a deal in terms of the global supply chain. But China had, you know, it's the world's most populous country. It had, a, you know, a huge underutilized, relatively uh, well-educated labor force. And so it just had room to uh, keep expanding and expanding. And so, you know, China now accounts for more than 20% of world manufacturing exports up from essentially zero uh, in 1985. And that, that could never be the case for a smaller country. So the extraordinary rate of growth combined with the huge untapped potential coming from China's size is what also made it such a, a one-off event. I mean, maybe we'll see that again with India. Maybe we'll see that again with Brazil. Uh, but there aren't too many other countries that large. Well, I had never made that connection uh, about capacity before. One yeah. of the things that we talk about in the U.S. market uh, or labor market is that, you know, one of the reasons why we can grow right now without seeing a, a lot of wage growth is that we're still, and therefore inflation, is that we're still, you know, getting people back and dragging people back sure. into the labor market. Um, Absolutely. And so what I hadn't really seen, it's fascinating to hear you make this point about China, is that the other story about China over the last 20 years is sort of unprecedented internal migration within the country, yeah. Uh, yeah. From, from the country to the cities. And that inexhaustible yeah. labor, labor source is what prevented inflation from happening, which meant the shock sure. was so severe for so long. 
Exactly. China had so much scope to keep producing more and more stuff at low cost before it started to hit capacity constraints. Now, it is hitting capacity constraints. Right? You know, Wages have quadrupled uh, in the export zones. Uh, it's running against environmental constraints. Uh, it's, you know, young adult population is shrinking because of the one-child policy. And so it is, you know, running up against these constraints now. But, you know, that's, <laughs> you know, 30 years into this uh, experience. But it does seem like that there's something broken, again, in the transmission policy between social science um, and actual policymaking, which is that it still seems like, in terms of policy, we think about the aggregate. We look at the nationwide U3 number when we're, when we're thinking mm. about unemployment, when in fact labor is so much more specific and so much more uh, regional. Uh, is that transmission, I mean, it feels broken to me. You know, so there's a reevaluation of this whole notion of place-based policies, you know, places, policies that don't just address individuals based on their needs, but address locations based on their needs. And economists for a long time have sort of not been very sympathetic to place-based policies. They would say, well, look, why would you, you know, try to fix a place? Just find the people in those places who need help and, and help them. <laughs> you know, what, what does it matter, uh, you know, the location specifically, anything you could do by targeting a place, you could do better by targeting the people in that place. I think that's come under reexamination for a number of reasons. One is the sense that places themselves matters, not just the individuals, the characteristics of the jobs, the infrastructure, uh, the criminal enforcement, uh, the schools, and so on. And those things are all an ecosystem. Uh, another uh, is the observation that mobility has fallen. So one of the arguments against place-based policies has always been, well, people are moving around. So, you know, if you target a place, maybe, you know, people will move there, but that doesn't help in aggregate. They're just redistributing. But now we see that people are much less mobile than they used to be. Uh, and so I think there is a reexamination of those policies. And there are prominent federal policies like empowerment zones, opportunity zones. Mm -hmm. uh, Amazon, <laughs> Amazon is moving into one of those right. in Crystal City. Um, and so policymakers have invested in this. I think the the I mean the Fed banks are changing this too. There, there's been a lot right. of work at the at the regional Fed level talking about uh, reimagining the Community Reinvestment Act. Um, That's right. To think in terms of place instead of terms of household. Or even the, the Minnesota Fed under Neil Kashkari has you know launched this opportunity inclusive, inclusive growth initiative that's basically mm -hmm. looking not just at macroeconomic aggregates but uh, looking around you know, the uh, yeah, the Minnesota area where they are and, and the surrounding uh, states and saying, how do we make sure that people are participating in the aggregate growth that we see? But it's fascinating to hear you talk about the importance of place. And this is definitely, obviously, something that we've gotten from Raj Chetty's work as sure. well. And we're having this conversation where economists are going, you know what? Places and neighborhoods are really important. And when they say that somewhere, <laughs> a sociologist is just, you know, ripping out his hair, <laughs> Absolutely. right? Because sociologists have been screaming into the void uh, right. about the importance of place for decades. So sure. is there, again, I, I keep going to this yeah. problem with the way we think about policy problems and how much it's informed by the yeah. profession of economics. Do we need a national sociological council to sit right next to the National Economic Council? Yeah. Economists have a way, you know, I often say that economists are some of those surprised people in the world because we're often surprised by things that are obvious to others. <laughs> uh, because if they don't fit naturally into the theory, we sort of tend to think they're just, they, they aren't there. And uh, sometimes it turns out that they were – everyone else was right all along. So, you know, labor unions and so on have been screaming about the consequences of trade for a long time. And we've told them, you know, uh, just compete and don't worry about it. It will be fine uh, or you're just being greedy. <laughs> and, of course, they were, you know, 
they were sounding the alarm with su- with some legitimacy that the consequences were really uh, could be quite severe. Similarly, place based yeah economists were very have been very skeptical of place based uh, you know the importance of place. Now I will say a virtue of the economics profession is it learns from data and yeah. certainly the you know the work that I've done and others have done about the consequence of trade it's not been received uh, with hostility. It's been uh, received with a lot of intellectual interest. People have been surprised, but then they've updated their uh, their beliefs, and now you know the th- the theory, the theoretical papers are being published are very much papers about uh, frictional adjustment, about connecting the you know supply chain across places, and understanding how labor markets work. So I I think the economists are not you know when presented with new evidence, they do yeah. change their views, and that's absolutely on the importance of place. So. I will say that the kind of empirical revolution in economics, the so-called credibility revolution that has made empirical analysis, has you know raised its credibility to the level of theory, has had a very uh, constructive effect on how economists think about the world. And I think that thinking is much more textured. Now, I agree. It's, some of it's a lot more like sociology and sociologists like, yeah, we've been telling you this for decades. How come you didn't listen? And, and that's correct. But its strength is it is very good at assessing causal effects. You know, the reason economists have always been skeptical of saying, well, you know, bad places are bad, bad for people is to say, well, look, that's just a correlation. Maybe places are bad because uh, the people there are, you know, not set up to do well, but that's not about the place. It's about the individuals. And trying to, you know, say what is the effect of a place as opposed to the people there? What's the effect of uh, a specific policy as opposed to its intention. Those are very hard questions to answer in the social science. We don't get to run that many experiments at that kind of level. And teasing those apart has been on the agenda for of economists for 30 years. And yeah. we've made a lot of progress, and the data and computing has improved along with it, although I'd say you couldn't use that data and computing if you didn't have the intellectual infrastructure to do causal analysis. And so I think there's been a lot of progress. Uh, so... The toolkit is powerful, but the, the danger of great tools is that they can blind you <laughs> yeah. uh, to the problem. You could become too enamored with the model. But the strength of the economic toolkit is that uh, it's increasingly good at learning from data, asking the right questions, figuring out a way to make them clear and convincing, and then take that evidence and you know filter it back into our reasoned understanding of how the world works. Yeah, and the, I think there's a frustrating conversation going on about the profession of economics because um, somebody says economics is broken, and then economists say, of course, that's not true. Look how hard we're working to fix our models. We're introducing new frictions. We've introduced heterogeneity. Um, you know, we're, we're looking at commuting zones. Uh, we're really doing a great job of looking at the data and figuring out where we were wrong and how to get it right in the future. Um, and that's true when economists say that. And then you have, at the policy level, None of that is sinking. None of that is coming through. I I don't know if none of it's coming through. I, I mean, I, I know during the Obama administration, certainly the work that I was doing, the work that Raj Chetty and Nathan mm-hmm. Hendren was doing, that Roland Fryer was doing, uh, that that definitely filtered up. And I met twice with the president to talk about it. Okay. Uh, I know uh, many others have as well. And I, uh, the U.S. Trade Representative was in touch with us. And so I do think a lot of that was heard. It's hard to turn the ship that quickly, but it's not yeah. that it didn't make it through. Now, I would say in the Trump administration, <laughs> I, it's there are strong views on trade. I'm not sure they're well informed by research. Uh, and certainly they're not talking to me. But on either side, I mean, that's that's really interesting is that I, I'm just now when I brought up the, you know, it doesn't seem to be coming through to policymakers. I was thinking of, of a conversation between uh, Gary Cohn and uh, Donald Trump, or at least 
you know, what was reported in the Bob Woodward book where, you know, Trump says, I just don't think that trade is good. And Gary Cohn says, well, you know, I, I wanted to be a football player, but just because you think something doesn't make it true. <laughs> and I read that conversation and I thought, I don't know which side I want to be on here. Yeah, I I wish the Trump policy on trade, they're engaged on trade. They obviously think it's important. They're not wrong to think it's important. I wish it were clearer, you know, what the objectives were. I think there's a, there's still a very strong mercantilist sentiment in the trade in the Trump administration that just deficits are bad, importing goods is bad, uh, exporting goods is good. And I think there are very important, very legitimate concerns about intellectual property and theft of intellectual property, about non-tariff barriers to trade relations with China. And, uh, and I think those needed to be surfaced. And I actually think, you know, much as I'm not a big fan, I'm not a fan of the Trump administration, I think they were right to surface these issues. They had been pushed under the table. I think the, the U.S., again, this is a, ge a strategic geopolitical thing. There was a view of, well, we need China on our side, so let's not really raise this, this ugly issue too aggressively. Let's not make it too public. I think the Trump administration has done that. It's got their attention. I think that China's leaders are rattled by how aggressive the U.S. has been about, you know, calling out theft of intellectual property, about placing sanctions, about imposing tariffs. Now, in the long run, I don't want those tariffs to persist. I do not think that's a good thing, and I do not think a prolonged trade war is a good thing. However, if it causes a renegotiation of the terms of China's compliance with the rules of the WTO uh, and about recognition of the value of certain strategic intellectual assets that we do not actually want to uh, share, I think that would be beneficial. So I do think part of the Trump, the Trump phenomenon is a reaction to the economic pain of the, uh, of the China shock. I think that you see that in the data. We've shown that in uh, vote patterns. Uh, you see it in yeah, surveys. Really, yeah, that's really, I'm sorry to interrupt, but that's a really important point to make. This is a, this is a paper you wrote uh, in yeah. 2017 that said, uh, I mean, I'll, I'll let you summarize the paper, but it was, it was uh, eye-opening for me. Yeah, we see that in areas that were particularly affected, and you know, when I say areas, I mean, you know, the South, South Atlantic, uh, in commuting zones where manufacturing was located and where a lot of jobs were lost, we see a, both in the House of Representatives an election of kind of Tea Party conservatives, and then those places also, this, they swung towards Trump relative to prior uh, Republican presidential candidates. And it wasn't a huge swing, but they happened to be located in states uh, like Michigan, for example, in Pennsylvania, where that was instrumental, where that that kind of swung the um, electoral college. So yeah, I do think that you know tr Trump was partly tapping into the legitimate uh, economic you know anger about the economic pain that had been inflicted. Uh, he wasn't uh, he wasn't just making that up. The China shock really did have you know deep economic consequences that left people feeling both uh, worse off and ignored, politically ignored. Let me let me talk about a more recent paper uh, that you wrote because I, I think of it uh, as 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 a bookend to your China Shock paper, which is uh, <laughs> it's from August of of this year and it's got the amazingly bold title: "Is Automation Labor Displacing?" I mean, the answer to that question is is the fundamental question of the study of economics. But it, it for me, these two papers are, are, are important together because they look at an industry and at a regional level at what's going on. And I can tell you that you know, I, I, I covered you know, the economics of the 2016 campaign, and I would go to plants and I would talk to managers and I would say, the job losses you're experiencing right now, are they trade-based or are they from automation? And they would look at me and they would shrug their shoulders and they would go, I don't know. 
(laughs) (laughs) And that conversation happened more than once. And so, you know, walk me through this paper, because these are the two fundamental questions that we're trying to answer. And I think deeply failing to answer at a policy level. But we know more about the data now. Yeah. So let me say a lot of people are working on this question about automation and labor displacement. I, I don't want to claim to be the uh, the only or the leader necessarily, uh, but a contributor, I hope. <laughs> and, you know, I think people, there's a, a perception that, you know, uh, yes, we've been through prior waves of automation. It's turned out fine, but this time could be different. Of course, every time is different. And the question is, you know, what are the effects on the number of jobs? Where will those jobs be? And what will they pay? And what Anna Solomons and I, she said at the University of Utrecht, my co-author on that paper, what we show, and I think this is uh, sensible, is automation or, or productivity growth, which is partly but not entirely from automation, tends to reduce employment where it occurs uh, in, in aggregate. So, you know, you have a lot of productivity growth in manufacturing or in uh, iron ore extraction, you see employment fall. But that actually has lots of upstream and downstream consequences that in net will increase the number of jobs. So, you know, if if there's productivity growth in the steel industry, that may reduce steel employment, but it will increase employment in the car industry and in the construction industry uh, and in the iron ore extraction industry and also raise consumer incomes. And that will cause more employment in restaurants and movie theaters and so because on. Because steel is an input to... Cars exactly. and steel gets cheaper than cars. That's get right, and ore is an input into steel. <laughs> so as you make more steel, you'll 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 need to extract more ore. Um, but what we also find, and I think, is that as automation has proceeded, the 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 share of in, of value added of, of basically output paid to workers in in those sectors that are advancing has tended to fall. And uh, it's not been replaced elsewhere. So, you know, there's a, a well-known phenomenon, which I've written about and others have written about, about the decline in labor share of national income, especially in the last 15 years. Uh, and this is not just in the United States. This is uh, across uh, the developed world and possibly in the developing world, although the data are less good. And there's a question of how much, what is this coming from? Is it coming from automation? Is it coming from changes in market structure? Is it coming from a failure of competition policy? And the short answer is we don't know, <laughs> uh, but a longer answer is I, I think there's reasonably that there's it's partly a technological phenomenon that uh, not not the most simple one that many people have in mind, which is machines take the work away from people and then therefore you know labor makes less, but more that uh, automation has information technology specifically has really changed the nature of competition and kind of led to. Uh, large advantages for businesses that have a kind of a platform or a business model that's very hard to replicate and that gives them large market share. So examples would be like a Walmart or Amazon or an Apple, but it doesn't have to be. It doesn't have to be just a, a tech product. It could be a financial product. Think of Vanguard. Uh, it could be an auto company. There are many fewer of them in the world than there were uh, 30 or 40 years ago, and that these large firms increasingly have a kind of a, they form a, a fringe of very competitive uh, firms that have a kind of low cost structure and low labor expenditure. And as their share of the market grows, that shifts economic activity towards firms that are capital rather than labor intensive. So it's not that they're all replacing all their workers with machines. It's that the, the firms that are, that use less labor are becoming uh, more and more the market leader. So you, this is what you refer to as superstar firms. That's what we refer to as superstar firms and work with John Van Rienen, Christina Patterson, David Dorn, and Larry Katz. So it seems like 
one thread here is that uh, we don't necessarily have a trade problem. We have a trade adjustment problem in certain regions mm -hmm. uh, that are devastated by trade. Mm -hmm. And then we look at automation. And what I took from that paper is we don't have an automation problem. We have an adjustment problem for specific industries where where jobs never recover. They, they, they may grow in other industries, but they don't recover in those specific industries. So I would say we don't have an employment problem. And, and you, you don't have to... to you don't have to trust me on that. <laughs> Look at the unemployment rate. Uh, but we do have a wage problem. Uh, we have a, a growing fraction of employment in low-wage kind of services uh, where there's not very specialized skills. There's not a lot of training. And so uh, a lot of the gains, such as they are, are very concentrated among you know highly educated workers, among creative types, among owners of capital. And that is a, a problem, and technology has exacerbated that problem. And I think that is an, an important source of discontent. Not that people can't find a job, but their sense of diminished life prospects, that maybe their kids won't do as well as they did, that they don't have a kind of a career ladder to climb. I think that's, a, that's a, an important economic and policy and political issue. So if it's a wage problem, then it's the, you know, you, you leave one industry because of competition from automation or trade, um, and you end up in another industry with a lower wage, probably worse exactly. conditions. Uh, you know, for example, one of the reasons where I think Americans are nostalgic about manufacturing jobs is that, you know, there was a guaranteed 40 hours with benefits. Exactly. That's a massive yeah. difference from, you know, forget wage. That's a massive difference in quality of life from what you get when you go to a wage job, regardless of the wage, somewhere else where you don't get a guaranteed 40 hours. And and you don't get health benefits. That's right. Manufacturing work was shift work. The yeah. you know, factories would run 16 or 24 hours a day. It led to stable, reliable employment structures and also work that required some specialized skills. So uh, workers were not immediately replaceable. Uh, and often that stability allowed for the provision of benefits, which have a lot of fixed costs that you can't give to people who work for you, you know, 12 hours a week. So yeah, movement out of manufacturing has generally meant a deterioration in the quality of jobs for non-college workers. So, you know, it seems like the problem is not necessarily the China shock or automation, but that we, that the United States was susceptible to the China shock or to automation, that we, that we weren't particularly good at adjusting it. So, you know, as we reluctantly start another you know, presidential election cycle, you know, there's a chance to sort of think about this in a different way. So what is the policy prescription? If it's not throwing up tariffs, if it's not, you know, destroying automated looms, right? If it's if it's a policy prescription that we can adopt to make us more resilient as we adjust, what is that prescription for adjustment? Yeah, it's going to have to be involved in investing in people. I mean, the U.S. is extremely extraordinarily stingy on what it spends on labor market adjustment and so-called labor activation. So, you know, for example, Denmark, which is the other extreme, spends a half percent of GDP on active labor market uh, policies. The U.S. spends uh, maybe a 20th of a percent of G GDP on the same things. And what does active labor market policies mean? They mean a combination of uh, investment in training, in uh, monitoring and pushing and assisting people, and also providing them with social insurance uh, at the point when they lose employment so they're not, uh, you know, forced, they don't lose their homes, they don't lose their uh, health insurance, and they're able to take the time to uh, make a successful adjustment to, uh, a, you know, a better form of work. So you could do, you know, 
two alternative policies. One is to try to stick your finger in the dike and just you know hope you can keep the water off, whether keep the water out, whether that's trade or technological change. That's not going to happen. Maybe on the trade front you can do that. On the technology front, that's certainly not going to happen. And the U.S. is a leader, thankfully, uh, in a lot of these innovations. So if you want to share the gains broadly and you want to limit the economic and potentially the political pain, then you need to find a way to bring people along. Historically, we have done that through you know, very large investments in public education, in high school, in uh, college, uh, in primary school, and so on. But um, we may be at a point where we need to do a lot of retraining of investing in adults, investing in workers who are displaced. And there we have uh, historically had fewer tools and made much stingier investments. And we're going to have to be prepared to ramp that up. Specifically, are we talking about apprenticeships? Are we talking about wage subsidies? What, what are the things that we do? It's going to have to be a lot of those things. There is no one size fit all. So some of them is going to be apprenticeships. You know, some will be investments in community colleges. Some could be wage wage insurance, as you said. So, you know, if people have to take a, le- a lower paying job, we partly compensate them for a little while. Could be the earned income tax credit, which is just a subsidy to people who are doing low paid work. It can be some. It can be place-based policies. It can be investing in communities. It can even be investing in higher education research institutions, which create all kinds of spillover benefits to the places where they're located. So I don't think there's there's going to be a single policy, but there has to be openness to invest in these, uh, and it's going to take a lot of experimentation. We don't we don't have a, a million great models that just need you know to be turned on, fired up, and uh, have cash showered upon them. Unfortunately, this is not something we've been historically great at. And so we don't have any we don't have any shovel ready labor policies. It's not that we have none, but we don't have as many and we haven't even studied them as closely. There's recent evidence, for example, that the trade adjustment assistance program actually was more successful than people had recognized that individuals who got it and got uh, uh, went to school uh, got a a very positive return on that. It's work by Ben Hyman, who's a uh, was a Ph.D. student at at the Wharton School. Unpublished work, but it looks very convincing. Uh, But we don't have a lot of those. But one thing we do know is it's going to be a a kind of a multifaceted problem with lots of different policies for people with different needs. For some people, it's like getting, you know, through a four-year program. But in other people, it's a community college program. For other people, it's vocational training and apprenticeships. Uh, For others, um, it's going to be some combination of social assistance. For others, it's going to be trying to reinvest in communities that make them just more vibrant places where lots of people can find work. So, David Arthur, I have to say you've now left me profoundly depressed at the end of this conversation oh, because your policy prescription is that it's going to have to be a complex, deliberative approach that's going to ultimately require investment. And those are the three things that we don't do in America. <laughs> uh yeah, well, you know, what do Winston Churchill says, say America always does the right thing in the end after it's exhausted all the other alternatives? <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> uh, so we have been a, an innovative country in many points at many crucial junctions in our history. I think there's reason for concern about whether we really have the stomach and the foresight to make the kind of investments and to, you know, instead of turning outward in anger at the rest of the world, to turn, you know, to focus inward on what we can do to heal ourselves. But I'm I'm not giving up hope. Uh, there there are uh, things to feel optimistic about. Certainly, our labor our labor market is uh, in great shape right now. Uh, employment is very high. Wages are growing, uh, not as fast as we'd like, but they are growing. Moreover, I think there's reason that we'll see productivity growth, and that you know growth creates a lot of potential for new revenue sources, for new income, and therefore new programs. And I think our technological leadership is quite important. 
and that we continue to be a very innovative and entrepreneurial company country, excuse me. And not everyone directly benefits, but many of us indirectly benefit from the uh, opportunities and income and wealth that creates. David Ultra, thank you. Okay, well, thank you very, very much. It was a pleasure speaking with you. I hope I was able to address a few of these hugely important questions. Uh, yes, uh, <laughs> so many. The funny thing is, I've, I've got I've got a massive stack of your research here, and we only got into like two or three papers. But I thank you. That was Alpha Chat, produced by Dan Richards and edited by Amy Keene. Bellingcat, we get to the bottom of things. From a global crisis to an underreported event, we find the facts using publicly available tools and resources, uncovering what is hidden on and below the surface. We connect the dots using social media posts, satellite images, and public records, and empower others to do the same by sharing how we do it. The ability to do so is only made possible by our readers, supporters, and community members. Care to join us? Learn how at bellingcat.com.